We're in the book of 1 Samuel, continuing in our studies there. Chapter 21. So we are moving along. When we started um, 1 Samuel, I did not plan ahead or intend to be talking about what we've been talking about the last several weeks. Um, it really... It just kind of came in the teaching. I think it's uh, very applicable, as we, as we have seen. We'll talk more about this. But um, whenever that happens for me, I, I begin to realize that the Lord has something to say to us. When there's something specific, and especially we get on kind of a theme within a book that carries us through several lessons, um, that's my assumption is, is God is trying to say something or wants to bring us to some understanding perhaps we wouldn't have otherwise, um, and so I'm, I am so thankful for this, but it's, it's challenging to think through. We're gonna do this some, again some, morning, some more this morning, but look at chapter 21, verse one. Let's get our feet under us. Which says, then David came to Nobay. I know it looks like Nob. Nob is the American way we would say it. He came to Nob. It's Nobay. David came to Nobay, to Ahimelech, or Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you and I have directed the young men uh, to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand. There's consecrated, Kodesh bread, holy bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Lord, what we're about to talk about is something that we could easily um, misunderstand or overthink. And I pray that we wouldn't do that. I pray that you would show us, once we get through all of the teaching this morning, what we're going to look at, that you would show us the simplicity, truly, of what this means. How to live this way before you. Holy Spirit, would you teach us in spirit and in truth? This is how we desire to come. In Jesus' name, amen. January 1956, a book was released, I think a, a critical cultural book at the time. It was called What's Next, Charlie Brown? Charles M. Schultz. And the opening eight-frame uh, comic strip shows Charlie Brown standing there at, with Lucy, and Charlie is saying, no. And Lucy has obviously just offered to hold the football for him again, right? 
In the next frame, Lucy says, I wouldn't think of such a thing. I'm a changed person. Isn't this a face you can trust? <laughs> so Charlie walks away, and he comes running back at full speed to kick that football. Of course, Lucy pulls it away at the last second, and Charlie Brown goes flying through the air. And the final frame shows Lucy leaning over Charlie Brown, lying flat on his back, saying, I admire you, Charlie Brown. You have such faith in human nature. <laughs> I just love it. We have been talking about the human nature lately. And again, it was not something that was pre-planned, at least by me, that we would be looking at these things, but it has been, to me, I don't know about you, but to me, so applicable in thinking through what our nature is and how we relate to God and to each other and to this world with that very human nature. I'm talking about spirit, soul, and body, right? If you've been here the last two or three weeks, this has been the hot topic, spirit, soul, and body. We have looked at some very spiritual people. When you say spiritual people, th these are great examples. Hannah and Samuel and Jonathan and David. These are spiritual people. How do you know? Look at the fruit in their lives. Look at what they do. Look at how they live. Look at to whom they constantly turn. Spiritual people. Spent the last couple of weeks looking at a soul man, Saul himself. He is the royal poster child of the soul man. That, that's Saul. We've also looked at carnal men. I, maybe you've forgotten, but Hophni and Phinehas, Ellie's sons, who were so carnal. We've looked at Goliath, talk about a big, giant carnal man. And now we've seen here in verse seven the sinister appearance of Doeg, the Edomite, not even an Israelite, Doeg, who serves Saul, who works for Saul, and this guy is an underhanded Devious man. David later in Psalm 52 calls him a razor-tongued worker of deceit. So he's a bad dude. He's a carnal man. But, but understand, in the world, it's not broken down. There are carnal people, soulish people, and spiritual people. No, we all have spirit, soul, and body. From what we would call the best of us to the worst of us, from the most evidently spiritual among us to the most evidently carnal among us, every human being is formed, is shaped in the image of God and every human being has that, the spirit and the soul and the body. The question is, to which will we aspire? Where will we live? Now, the, the challenge here this morning is, is you can really overthink this and the overthinking is the problem. Now, I'll explain more about that. But I wanna remind you here, those of you who seek to be spiritual people, that spiritual does not mean perfect. We talked about this Wednesday night. The spiritual man is not the perfect man. The spiritual woman is not the perfect woman. Righteous, yes, because you've been made righteous in Jesus, but the spiritual person is capable of all kinds of carnal uh, behavior. The spiritual person is especially capable of slipping down into the soul man, the soul woman. So the spiritual man or woman isn't perfect. We're being made perfect. Notice I said we are being <laughs> made perfect because I wanna be a spiritual man. I want to, to live a spiritual life before God. That, that really is my desire. Do I hit it every day? No, 
Do I reveal that in my behavior, in my relationships consistently? No, but it's what I want. It's what so many of us desire. Spiritual doesn't mean perfect. We are being made perfect. We're being perfected. We will be perfected, Philippians 1.6, in the day of Christ Jesus. So that day is coming when finally the way God sees us will be the way we are, and that is perfect and righteous in Jesus. However, breaking it down, the spiritually minded person, this is just the one whose mind and who, who, whose soul is set on the spirit, is set on spiritual things. We wanna nurture that aspect of who we are. You're doing it right now, un, unwittingly perhaps, Simply being in worship nurtures the spirit. Being in the word of God nurtures the spirit. Talking about Jesus with a friend or family member or in fellowship with others nurtures the spirit. Coming to the table of the Lord, these are all things that nurture the spirit. These are all things of the spiritually minded. What we're doing right now is a spiritually minded activity. The carnally minded has their soul set on the flesh. Like yesterday, I had flank steak at a barbecue and I was set on that flesh. And it wasn't a bad thing. And by the way, then they had chocolate cake for dessert, and I had a big slab of chocolate cake. I was lying on the couch last night going, Cheryl, don't let me do these things to myself. <laughs> wasn't bad. It's not a bad thing. But it's carnal, you know? So understand that just as, the, as spiritual doesn't necessarily mean that you're perfect, carnal doesn't mean that you're wallowing in sin, it just means that you are imbibing in something fleshly. You are enjoying something physical, but obviously it can also be problematic. So the carnally minded, the soul is set on the flesh, looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in physical, uh, material, earthly things. Spiritually minded, set on the spirit. The carnally minded, set on the flesh. And the soul man just can't make up his mind which way to go. The problem is that in, in the soul, with the mind, the intellect, where we think, the seat of reason and all of that, in the soul, we can, we can aspire to be spiritual and we can think about spiritual things. So using the soul for that purpose, that's great. In the soul, we may be attracted to the piece of chocolate cake, that's okay, or in the soul, we may be attracted to the lure of sin, the carnality of sin. That's not okay. But the problem is when we get soul stuck. And I wanna talk about that this morning because that happens as well. The soul man is the one who can't make up his mind. He thinks he can. He's intellectual, but he remains in the brains. She's the one, the soul woman, who is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, Laodicea. And so focused on things that are just staying right there in the soul and not really going spiritual and not necessarily even going carnal. There are a lot of good religious people who live in the soul. They're stuck there. The problem with a mind that ends up stuck in the soul, set on the soul. The, the, the problem with living that way without aspiring to the Holy Spirit of the living God, without aspiring to the spiritual that we have within each of us, is the flesh always wins. If the soul is not aspiring to the spirit, 
flesh will always win out. Ultimately, the soul will fall to the flesh. There, there has to be a decision there. Let me explain further. Paul uh, said in Romans chapter uh, eight, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, and listen to the language. A couple of things that, that Paul shared. First here in Romans eight, he says in, in verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, you make a decision for Christ, you are following him, you're a Christian, you're a believer. There's no condemnation for you. The past is past, it's done, it's history, it's over. It doesn't follow you. Unless you're living in the soul in which you keep dredging that stuff up and thinking about it. But it, it, it's no longer an issue as far as the Lord is concerned, no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is looking like carnal man, Jesus came and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that is in his own flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now watch this. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Their minds are their souls. This is the soul person. This is the carnal person whose mind is set, whose soul is set on carnal things. But those who are according to the spirit, the soul man, the soul woman, is set on spiritual things, the things of the spirit. Verse six, the mind set on the flesh, that's death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. It's one of the ways you know that you're walking in the spirit as Paul calls us to do at the end of Galatians 5. Let's walk in the spirit. How do I know? You're at peace with the Lord. Regardless of the storms of life, you have life and peace and you recognize it as a different way. That's the spiritual mindset. Because, verse seven, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It's one of the first signs that you really know that you've got a carnal mindset is hostility toward the Lord, toward things that are related to the Lord, toward the people of God. And he says, it does not subject itself, that is the mindset on the flesh, to the law of God. It's not even able to. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So stop right there and think about this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, a remarkable thing, easy to gloss over. When we're talking about spirit, soul, and body, Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? He's just described exactly what we're talking about. What do you mean? Think about the temple. The temple or the tabernacle. What, how many rooms did it have? Two inner, one outer. Spirit, soul, body. Holy of holies, holy place, outer court. And Watchman Nee, in the book I've told you about, The Spiritual Man, talks about this. Now, I, I wanna say something real quickly. I, I am, I'm very impressed with the book. I love, I've learned a lot from it. I don't agree with everything Watchman Nee says. I agree with everything scripture says, but any book written by any man, I don't care who it is, I'm not gonna be in full agreement because they're not gonna be 100% right. 
Watchman Nee is correct whenever he's quoting scripture, which he does a lot, and he has such a great perspective. Listen to what he says here. Watchman Nee says, we know that the temple is divided into three parts. The first is the outer court, which is seen by all and visited by all. All external worship is offered there. Going further in is the holy place into which only the priests can enter and where they present oil, incense, and bread to God. They are quite near to God, yet not the nearest, for they're still outside the veil and therefore unable to stand before his very presence. God's glory dwells deepest within, in the holy of holies, where darkness is overshadowed by brilliant light and into which no man can enter, talking about the temple. Though the high priest does enter once annually, it nonetheless indicates that before the veil is rent, there can be no man in the holy of holies. So we have this picture of the temple. This is one of the big reasons why God began with the tabernacle and then the temple and laid this before us for our understanding. Watchman Nee makes this compelling comparison between the temple of God and the temple of the Christian. My, myself, my human nature. I am a temple, as he says, of God. He relates then the holy of holies and the holy place and the outer court to spirit, soul, and body. And that is incredibly instructive because Nee continues, the human spirit lies beyond self-consciousness and above sensibility. He says, here we unite with and commune with God. This does not happen in your soul. It does not happen in your flesh. Spiritual communion with God happens in your spirit, man, in your spirit, woman, the spiritual nature. And he says, and I think this is absolutely spot on, the spirit cannot be reached or accessed unless God is willing to rend the veil, unless the veil is taken away, unless it's torn. This is the significance of the tearing of the veil at the temple, in the temple, at the crucifixion of Jesus. Suddenly, all access is available to anyone who would come to God body, soul, and spirit. And you approach God and, and commune with him in the spirit. Now, there are very soulish people who live their lives in the intellect and in the mind and in the soul, and they actually commune with God from time to time in the spirit. They just don't even realize they're doing it. But it does happen for those who have given their lives over to Jesus. Back in Romans uh, chapter eight, <coughs> excuse me, verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. We call that being born again. Sometimes we call that an awakening, a new awareness. You get it. You understand God's word in ways you didn't before. You actually begin to hear from the Lord or have impressions that come from the Lord or you have some understanding of him. You have sweet communion with him that you didn't have before you were born again. The spirit has been opened up. The veil has been rent if Christ is in you. He says, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells 
in you. Brethren, we're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Your ability to cry out to God, that emotion that stirs in you. And by the way, emotion is not spirit either. Emotion is physical reaction to something happening often in the spirit. But when you find yourself drawn to Jesus, maybe mid-song, or maybe you're driving in your car and an old worship song comes on and you start singing and you choke up. You know what just happened? You just started communing with God. You started feeling and experiencing in the flesh what's happening in your spirit. And Paul continues and says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's the problem. And this is why sometimes we talk about spiritual things and we read Romans 8 and we end up kind of wide-eyed and okay. I mean, great. How does that work? Do you ever get stuck in the soul? Soul stuck. Uh, I, I know you do. I know I do, and you know you do. Getting soul stuck, staying in that mid area of, of, of the nature is characterized by things like this, overthinking, um, rationalizing, worrying, overcome with anxiety or stress. Getting stuck in the soul can present itself as distrust, whether of God or other believers or what the, does the Bible really say? That's the earliest lie of Satan. Did he really say? Uh, it can present as wariness or self-protection or self-defense. This is soul stuff. And, and by way of understanding, it is where we find David this morning. Back in 1 Samuel 21, David is stuck in the soul. Now understand, David exemplifies the spiritual man, perhaps better than anybody else in the scripture other than Jesus himself. David exemplifies the spiritual man. You might go, well, wait a minute, there's the Bathsheba incident, and there's the, the time that he numbers his troops to just see how great he's become, and there, there are moments where David lies, exactly. Spiritual doesn't mean perfect. But David is the best picture outside of Jesus himself, my opinion, he is the best picture of the spiritual man in the Bible. Why? Because no matter how hard he falls, he always gets up in pursuit of God's own heart. That typifies the spiritual person. You get up and you pursue God again. You get up and you repent again. You get up and you turn back to the Lord again. You always find yourself, and sometimes it takes a season but you always find yourself walking in the direction of Jesus again. That's the spiritual man. That's the spiritual woman. I'm a pastor. I've fallen down so many times and I've repeated this sin so many times. I keep going back to that. Do you keep coming back to Jesus? You are still a spiritual person. It is only until we cut off God completely. It's only until we just sit in carnality that we're rejecting that spiritual aspect of ourselves. But the spiritual man, David, David pursues God. He is a man after God's own heart. 
He's not a man with God's heart. He's not a man of great spiritual heart. He's a man who pursues the heart of God, and that's what makes him the spiritual man that he is. His whole life is a life of pursuing the Lord. But chapter 21 opens with the spiritual man lying to a priest. How does God respond to a spiritual person who is at least in this moment, soul stuck. Verse one, let's consider the story. Then David came to Nobay to Achimelech the priest, and Achimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? Nobay, this city, uh, the, the word in Hebrew means high place, and it is. And it's not a high place like a, a pagan high place, but it is a mountain. It's a ridge, it's a high place. This is a descriptive name. And there at Nobay is the tabernacle. So you need to note right off the bat, the tabernacle's been moved. Now it's at Nobay. It's no, no longer in Shiloh where it was for some 350, 360 years. It has now been moved to Nobay on this high ridge about one to two miles, get this, north if you know your biblical geography, one to two miles north of a place called Jebus, which ultimately would be called Jerusalem. So think of where Jerusalem is, go about a mile, maybe two miles to the north, and you end up at Nobe. This is our first stop every time we go up to Jerusalem as a tour group. We stop at Nobe. We didn't stop at Nobe, Rick. No, we, it's called by another name. It's called Mount Scopus. So Mount Scopus, which today you go, oh, Mount Scopus is Jerusalem. Jerusalem today. But Mount Scopus is to the north of Mount Moriah, which is to the north of the city of David. City of David, you head up one, and a, one to two miles, and you end up on what is Mount Scopus today. And, and, and that's part of all Jerusalem today, but not then. Then it was Nobe. That was part of Benjamin territory. That is Saul's territory. So Saul is king, wants the tabernacle in his territory, in the territory of Benjamin, so it's moved to Nobe. Wait, wait, Rick, you said Saul is a soul man. Yeah, and the soul man is a religious guy. He wants to know where his church is. He wants to be able to walk in looking good, calling on the name of the Lord, but he's in his head with the whole thing. How do you know? His behavior, what he does. Look at the fruit. It's very simple to see. Saul is never the spiritual man that David is. He's a soul man, but he has the tabernacle moved to Mount Scopus to Nobe, where it resides at the beginning of our story here. Second thing to note is while the tabernacle's there, the ark is not. So they're still going to the tabernacle. They're still offering sacrifices there. But if you went into the most holy place of the tabernacle, the ark would not be there. It's still at Kiryat Jerim that is west of there. So it has not been brought back to be united with the tabernacle there just north of Jerusalem and ultimately onto the Temple Mount. Keep that in mind because it's absolutely amazing to me how often in the history of Israel, God receives a deficient, defective worship. Actually, that's really good news 
Because when the little foot pedals aren't working and the strings are out of tune and the voice isn't comfortable and, and there's all kinds of soulish stuff going on as there was for me this morning, it's irrelevant. God still receives our worship. Even when we feel deficient or defective. The Ark of the Covenant isn't even in the tabernacle, but worship's going on. The priests are offering the sacrifices on the altar. Yeah, but the ark's not there, okay? Just wait until we get into the kings and start to see how often the entire temple itself falls into disuse and disrepair. The priests aren't even showing up. Nobody even has a copy of the law. They're not keeping anything going on. And God does not nuke his people. I would have. God receives worship even when it's flawed. And even when we are stuck in our soul, even when we are overthinking things and stressing about life and feeling like we're never really connecting. Have you ever, let me just ask, don't raise your hand on this one. Have you ever spent the morning at church in worship and Bible study and gone home and realized you didn't say a word to Jesus? You didn't experience God at all. You know why? You were in your soul. You were stuck there. You, for whatever reason, didn't come to the Lord in spirit. So did he reject your worship that morning? No, he received it because he is a God of grace. And if I spend this much time on every single thought this morning, we're never gonna get out of here. So the priest Ahimelech comes to David. Ahimelech meets him, trembling, verse one says, trembling. Yeharad, which means startled, um, anxiously careful, cautious. We might even say nervous. Ahimelech sees David coming to the tabernacle and comes out to him and he's like, something's amiss. <laughs> he is unsettled at the sight of this famed giant killer, uh, son-in-law to the king, because remember now, king is, is married to Saul's daughter, Michal, and now he comes to Nobe by himself. This is odd. This is not usual behavior. Where's the royal entourage? You know, wh where's the security force? Where is even an armor bearer? To what, why is David coming in here all by himself? And I suggest that he's probably looking distressed and disheveled because it's right before here that he's fled for his life from the presence of Saul. He's on the run now. And the first place he goes, oh, wait, 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 here's the spiritual man. First place David runs is to the tabernacle. So while he is all up in his head, as you will see, he goes to the right place. He goes to the house of the Lord, the place where God's presence resides, where his priests minister. That's the spiritual man. That's the spiritual woman. You may not feel like being around God's people. That's irrelevant. Go to where they are. You may not feel like you want to sing at all on a certain morning that's irrelevant, go worship the Lord. You're not gonna get into your spiritual self if you just sit there and ruminate in the soul. And so David, the spiritual man, he goes to the house of the Lord, but the spiritual man immediately slips into the soul man and he begins to lie, verse two. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I've directed the young men to a certain place. That's why I'm alone. I, I, you know, my, my, my squad, uh, they're, they're doing something else, part of this secret mission, David says. But there, no, there was no king's commission. There was no 
mission at all. And apparently, at least from what we read in 1 Samuel 21, there are no young men there. David's alone. David is flying by the seat of his tunic. He is, you know, all on his own here. It's an odd thing. And even the priest, Ahimelech, who I, I believe here is also a very spiritual man, discerns something's wrong. And so he comes, the Bible says trembling, but just think a little nervous. What's up? What's happening? David is also hungry, verse three. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. I'm starving. Do you have any English muffins? <laughs> Something I could, I, could, I could eat here? His story is getting sketchier by the sentence. It doesn't make sense. And to add to the oddity of this, so here he is alone, he's, he's look, looking stressed, he's hungry, he doesn't have provision, and he's unarmed. This is a man on a mission for the king, and he's unarmed? If you look over at verse eight, David said to Ahimelech, now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me uh, because the king's matter was urgent. Oh yeah, that's right, I had to get out so quickly I forgot to bring my sword. Doesn't even have his little shepherd's bag or his sling. He's got nothing. And this is, this is so unusual. Davis says, he sounds like a plumber asking to borrow a customer's pipe wrench. <laughs> or an insurance salesman asking you to download and print off the requisite forgotten forms. David needs food. He needs weapons. But his cover story is less than satisfying. We have a term for this, what David is doing here, for these little white lies of convenience. I mean, you, you might read this and go, well, yeah, he's on the run, and, and he doesn't want to let Ahimelech in on what's happening. He's trying to just keep that to himself. I understand this. I get this. I would do the same thing, and so would any soul man. We have a phrase for this, a term for little white lies of convenience. You know what the little white lies are. Those are the ones that aren't gonna hurt anybody but they just make the day a little easier to get through. We have a term for that. It's called situational ethics. And David is employing situational ethics where truth depends on the need, where the end justifies the means. Now, now let me just real quick for anyone who says, hey, wait a minute, though. The Lord told Samuel not to give the whole truth when he went to anoint David in Bethlehem. We saw that a few weeks ago. And that was okay. He wasn't lying. He wasn't sharing the entirety of the mission, but what he shared was truthful and legitimate, and that is not a little white lie. David could have said, listen, I, I can't say what's going on here, but, but I'm hungry. That wouldn't have been a lie. What David says is not the truth. What David speaks, he does according to situational ethics, and, and, and I, commentators justify it. They say, well, well, he did this because it was in Ahimelech's best interest. David is thinking what the priest doesn't know won't hurt him. And by lying, he's protecting the priest. Well, how's that gonna turn out? Look ahead to verse 15 of chapter 21. No, sorry, not, not 21, chapter 22. Look at verse 15 of chapter 22, where Ahimelech is called up in front of Saul 
And Saul dresses him down, and Ahimelech said, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. He's speaking honestly. I don't know what's going on. David lied to him, and so now he's like, I I don't know. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. Down in verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, the man who was there, we saw in verse seven, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest and killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck the city of Nobay, the priest with the edge of the sword, men and women and children and infants and oxen and donkeys and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. Listen, that is the outcome of David's little white lie. Situational ethics, a lie of convenience, a lie to protect the priest. Well, it didn't protect the priest. How different would it have been if Ahimelech had known what was going on? At least he would have been on the alert. Situational ethics are soulish. They are very in the moment, dealing with the now, not considering the future fallout of what the Bible very clearly calls falsehood. David is sinning here. What he does is lie, and the Bible calls a lie a sin, period. It doesn't matter if it seems little or big. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's for all the right reasons, it's still a lie, And the Bible says, God's law, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Someone might say, okay, but that's talking about like in court or something, right? David bore false witness before his neighbor, Ahimelech. It's false witness because David does not afford Ahimelech the truth, the real story. He makes this one up to this man's harm and the harm of every priest in that place. David, at the end of chapter 22, we saw Wednesday night, David's gonna take responsibility for it. He's gonna say, this is on me. This is my fault. See, if he had told him the truth, then this priest and all the other priests could have at least been thinking, this is a dangerous situation. When they were called to go up before Saul, they could have been on the alert. They could have gotten their families out of no bay. Just in case, because of something very devious and dark that was going on, but they didn't know because David thinks what the priest doesn't know won't hurt him. Tory says the whole of this is a gross falsehood, of which was attended with the most fatal consequences. It's well known that from all antiquity that it was held no crime to tell a lie in order to save a life. A heathen may say thus, but no Christian can act thus and save his soul, though he may for the moment save his life. That's the problem with little white lies, situational ethics, they are in the moment. And they are also very much in the head. David is later gonna write in Psalm 24, verse three, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He'll say in Psalm 40, verse four, I love this, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. See, the spiritual man would have in that moment recognized he was under the protection of the Lord. He could be honest with the priest, this is what's going on. 
He makes the Lord his trust. But the psalm goes on, Psalm 40, verse four, and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. You ever lapse into falsehood? You realize what that means. A lapse is sliding back into something. If I'm lapsing, it means to fall back into, and the soul man, the soul woman, very easily lapses into carnal or sin behavior. And that's what happens here with David. The spiritual man is in his head, he's stressing, he's anxious, he's fearful, he's trying to figure this out as he goes, he's trying to keep it uh, quiet for the moment, and as he speaks this lie, he slips into the carnal man. All because he's not trusting the Lord, rather lapsing into falsehood. Here's the thing. There is no such thing as moral neutrality. There's no such thing as spiritual indifference or ethical ambiguity where truth is concerned. There's no moral Switzerland. It doesn't exist. You don't, don't go sit in that place where I'm just gonna step back and, and not say anything because, you know. No, it's either true or it's not. It's either right or it's not. And the mind is either going to be set on the spirit or on the flesh. Beware the soul man. He is awfully self-convincing. Beware the soul woman. She is great at rationalizing. But the Bible says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We're walking in the light. We're walking in truth. We're walking openly and honestly. If David had walked in the light with Ahimelech, again, he and the other priests would have had a chance to at least know what was going on and seek safe haven for their families. But again, David lapses into falsehood. How blessed, Psalm 40, verse four, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. You wanna see the distinction? The most spiritual man who ever did live, Jesus, is the distinction. 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus is being led to the cross, and he's not pushing back. Why? Because the spiritual man entrusts himself to the Lord. The spiritual woman entrusts herself to God and walks in the light. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus got crucified for doing that. Yes, and risen and exalted and bestowed the name upon above which every name, or, or, or above every name is the name of Jesus because he entrusted himself to God. So in the moment he was crucified for it, in the big picture, he is glorified. Now you can, in the moment, protect yourself, but the big picture is gonna suffer for it. So all that brings us to this question this morning. What does the Lord do when the lonely, weary, famished, spiritual man or woman lapses into soulish dishonesty? What is the Lord's response to the spiritual person stuck in the soul? Go back and look, verse four. The priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand. There is consecrated bread. If only the young men and have kept themselves 
from women. Verse five, David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey, lie. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? Okay, so you get the sense here that Ahimelech is pressing David a little bit. There's no ordinary bread here. There, there is the holy bread. And if only you and the young men, still don't see any young men, if only you and, and, and the guys kept yourselves uh, sexually pure, then maybe we could, you know, do something about this. And David says, oh yeah, we are. I, I am, we, you know, the, we, 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 we were when we set out and it's been a journey. So, so clearly we are. Ahimelech can only judge on what he perceives. And finally, what he does here is respond from his own heart. Verse six. So the priest gave him the holy. That's how it would read in the Hebrew. He gave him the Kodesh. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. It's a great story. Now, again, the Bible here is not commenting, it is conveying. It's simply reporting what happened. It is not at this point, there's no statement of the rightness or wrongness of this personal exchange. It doesn't even call David out for lying, though we see that he's lying. It doesn't say David's right or wrong in his behavior. We see the outcome of it. But it doesn't tell us if it was right or wrong for Ahimelech to give David holy bread that is only for the priest, right? This is only for the priest to eat. But we get no judgment here from Scripture about whether this was okay or not. Okay, think about this with me. The only food available, the holy bread. It's also called showbread in the Bible. Showbread, which is lechem ha-marchet, and it means the bread of display. Showbread, or the bread that's for show. It was put out on the table of showbread in the holy place, 12 loaves stacked, six on, on each, and it was put out hot and fresh every Shabbat and then replaced on a weekly basis and was put out and, and replaced, put out and replaced, called lachem ha-marachet. You might say, okay, so the priests are supposed to eat that thing. It's weak old bread? It's in the holy place. My assumption is it probably tasted really good. My assumption is the same God who can provide manna made sure that as the priests are eating the bread at the end of the week, this was good stuff. This was like, like Cam's bread. Okay, if you've had Cam's sourdough, oh, my laundry. <laughs> and I start to realize, it's, it wasn't cake yesterday that's doing it, it's your bread. <laughs> I know, I'm assuming the bread was good, but the priests were to eat it. Look back or, or just listen to this. Leviticus chapter 24, verse five, then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in, in each cake. So it's, this is a, a pizza-sized loaf of bread. It's a big loaf here, each one of them, 12 of them. He says in verse six, you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row. Now, this doesn't mean on the bread. That would taste weird. Uh, but on each row, there would be rows of frankincense that it may be a memorial portion for the Lord, even an offering by fire, they would take the frankincense off and offer that on the altar of incense, and then the bread would be eaten by the priests. 
He says, every Shabbat, verse eight, you shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. That's a big deal. Verse nine, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. His portion forever, the holy bread, the showbread, or as it's also called in the story here, the bread of the presence, lechem hapanim, which means lechem bread, ha of panim, the face, bread of the face, or bread of the presence, the bread that is in the face of God the bread upon which the face of God looks, the, the bread that is as close as you can get, except for the veil, as close as you can get to the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, the bread of the presence. Exodus 25, verse 30 says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Now, we have a little issue at the Crawford bread basket. Uh, when it gets down to the end pieces and the crust. You know what I'm talking about. You get the loaf of bread at store and, and, and everybody goes for the better bread on the inside and you have the end pieces that do this, kind of accordion-like, until you get down and you got two crusts and maybe one piece in between that's hard and dry. And you know what happens in my house? That gets wrapped up, put in the bottom of the drawer and the new loaf is opened. So when dad goes home for a sandwich at lunchtime and I pull open the bread basket and I look in there and there are five little wrapped end pieces. <laughs> that is not right. It happens all the time. I gotta get this out. Sad little flat interlobes is what I get. <laughs> hey, when the fresh bread was baked and placed hot on the table of showbread, the, the priests were to remove the previous bread and eat all of it in the presence of the Lord. They would eat the bread in the presence of the Lord, thinking about the Lord. Talk about a spiritual man exercise. You'd eat this bread before God. They didn't leave the marginalized, discounted crust piling up in the holy place. My kids are here second service. We'll have this discussion. But here's the idea. It was, it was fellowship in the divine presence of God. It wasn't even about the bread itself, which I'm sure was very tasty. It was about the presence of God. It was about sharing this meal before the Lord. God didn't come down and eat it. I mean, think about that. The bread of the presence was not for God. He didn't need it, and he didn't eat it. This wasn't offered and then set out there and wait, you know, it wasn't like a pagan temple where they put it in a place and they wait until the mice and rats came in and ate it and then they'd say, look, our God ate the bread. It was set out and then it was eaten by the priest before the Lord to be in fellowship with the Lord. Consider that, what a beautiful picture. This is for the priests of Levi to recognize the blessing and the supply of God that he provided for them. It was offered to the Lord, but it blessed the priest. Let me say that again, because you are a royal priesthood. It's offered to the Lord, but it blesses the priest. How much of what you offer to the Lord blesses you? Answer, everything, all of it. 
anything that you offer to the Lord, guaranteed, will turn around and bless you. It's amazing how this works. My worship blesses me. My service of the Lord blesses me. My tithes and offerings blesses me. Fellowship with other believers blesses me. Anything I do in the name of Jesus, anything I do thinking, I'm doing this for you, Lord, this is about you, Lord, turns out I get blessed by it. This is how God rolls. This is a marvelous thing about being in relationship with God. Now, someone might say, hey, hey, wait a minute. What about the commandments? What about the requirements of God over our lives? Well, let me ask you, don't they fill you? Don't they strengthen you? Don't they build up your most holy faith? What I give to him, he turn around, turns around and uses to bless me. For from him and, and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever, amen. And yet his lampstand in the holy place lit up the work of the priest. His altar of incense would fill the nostrils and scent the robes of the priests. His showbread nourished the priest. So listen to me. If you are a temple of the living God and the spirit of God dwells within you, 1 Corinthians 3.16, then the soul lit up, filled, and nourished by the spirit, that's the spiritual man. That's the spiritual man. The mindset on the spirit, the soul, the mind, the thoughts, the intellect, the reason is, is lit up by the spirit of God, filled by the spirit of God, nourished by the spirit of God. That's what the spiritual man does. That's how you become the spiritual man or woman, lit up, filled, and nourished in the very ministry that you do. Why do we do service? Why do we do ministry? Why do we do anything in the name of the Lord? Because it's lighting your way. It is scenting your robes with the aroma of Christ, and it is nourishing you as with the bread of the presence. Back in the story, however, we still have a problem. David was no priest. He, he was apparently sexually pure, hadn't been with a woman, at least since being on the run, but, but so what? What does that have to do with anything here? Again, if only the young men had kept themselves pure, and David says, well, we have, everything's pure, it's all good. Ahimelech, knowing that the bread was holy, made a decision to give it to David, listen, based on purity. He decided in the moment this would be okay to do. It would be okay to take the bread of the presence and offer it to David, who is not a priest, not even of the tribe of Levi, but he is ceremonially pure before the Lord, so based on ceremonial cleanness, he gives him the holy bread. But you know what? This holy bread was Ahimelech's to give. As a priest, it was his to give. Now, someone might say, wait, wait, wait. I thought it was only for the priest. Well, that was the custom, but that was not the law. What do you mean? The law doesn't say it was only for the priest. Nowhere does Torah law say only. Leviticus 24.9 says it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place. It's most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. It's for Aaron and his sons to eat it before the Lord. If they wanna share it, 
That's fine. Bible doesn't restrict it. Doesn't say nobody, if you eat the holy bread, you shall surely die. It doesn't say that. It just says it's for you guys. And Achimelech does something here I think that is so beautiful. He chooses to share the holy bread with David in that moment. I'm gonna have a little less bread this week. I'm gonna take home a little less to my family. I'm gonna give some to David here. Now, for all of that, this incident might receive very little airplay in the pulpit if it was just left in 1 Samuel 21. In fact, I would bet few of us would have ever heard this story if it was just in 1 Samuel 21, unless we happened to be reading through the Bible and saw it and thought, well, that's interesting, and moved right on. The reality is that Jesus calls out this story. And some of you may remember the conversation. He retells this story, and when he does, and you can turn over to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus takes hold of this story of Ahimelech providing David with the holy bread, and suddenly, for the first time in the Bible, he does it with divine endorsement. So he does it saying, this is okay, this is good. Watch this, Matthew chapter 12, verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on Shabbat, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on Shabbat. What is their problem? <laughs> What's wrong with these guys? The answer is very simple. They are overthinking the law. They are in the soul. They are a great example of hyper-religious soul men who are looking at the law and its extrapolation. This is soulish religion. Soulish religion. Alfred Adersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus, writes that the Talmud says, in case of a woman who rolls wheat to remove the husks, it's sifting. If she rubs the heads of wheat, it's threshing. If she bruises the ears, it's grinding. If she throws them up in her hand, it's winnowing. So based on Talmud, based on the rabbinical uh, commentary of Torah, not Torah, but based on the extrapolation from Torah, the disciples are picking and rubbing and eating the grain on Shabbat. They are in complete violation, but they're not. They're in violation of the commentary. They are not in violation of Torah. And that's the problem that we see coming up over and over between the Pharisees and Jesus on Shabbat. Jesus never violates Shabbat. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the Pharisees and the legalists and the soul man, the soul woman, will always elevate the application of God's word above God's word. And it's very dangerous because that's where we start to make up things and we become religious. That's the problem. The Bible is not religious. The Bible is not heavy-handed. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We make it heavy because we take from the word of God and we say, we must do this now. And if we don't do this, we are not holy. So the disciples, they're grabbing grain. By the way, that's McDonald's in the first century. What did you do if you're traveling, if you're hungry? There were no fast food restaurants. There was the grain, and 
Torah law allowed for as you're walking through the field, you can grab some grain and eat for sustenance, not a problem. And this is what they are doing. Well, Matthew 12, verse three, he said to them, Jesus responds, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? Oh, guess what? He did have companions. We didn't know in 1 Samuel 21. So David was telling the truth when he said, my young men are in another place. So he did have people with him. In fact, David says in 1 Samuel 21, verse three, when he asked for, the, for some bread, he says, do you have five loaves? So we can immediately assume that he had four people with him. You know, So he's got companions. Jesus now clarifies that. We didn't know that until Jesus reshares the story, he and his companions. And how, verse four, he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Not lawful. Jesus is using Pharisaical language. Not lawful for him to eat or for those with him, but for the priests alone. Don't you remember that story, guys? When was the bread of the presence set out on the table of showbread? Huh? You guys remember the, the day? Sabbath, yeah. It was set out. For, this is Sabbath day. So this is the day when the showbread would normally be set out. In fact, in Jerusalem that day, as they're walking through the grain fields, the showbread was being set out in the holy place. You know what that means? It means the priest was at work on Shabbat. He was working it was set out, by the way, not, not because it was a priestly snack. Why truly was the lachem hapanim set out every Shabbat, put into the holy place, hot and fresh, week after week after week? Why was it done? It was a quiet witness that God sustains his people and supplies all their needs. That's the picture of the showbread. God provides for his people. And now Jesus when confronted with the Sabbath work regulations of the Pharisees, he recalls the story of David and the right, uh, the right or righteous spiritual compassion of Ahimelech, and he doesn't do it to justify with situational ethics the behavior or the actions of his disciples, but to explain and to express the heart of God, to help them understand this is God's heart, God's heart of provision. God's heart of bread for his people. This is the heart of God for the person especially who is after God's own heart. Jesus went on and said, have you not read in the law that on Shabbat the priests are in the temple? They break the Shabbat. They're working. They're putting out the bread. They're tending the lamps. They're offering the incense. They are working. They're doing their job on Shabbat. That's a law violation, isn't it? No, they're innocent, Jesus says. They are innocent when they go in to serve the Lord like this. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned, and Jesus underscores this, the innocent. David was innocent in eating. Ahimelech was innocent in giving him the bread. The priests are innocent when they work on Shabbat. And the disciples right then are innocent eating grain in the grain field. If you had known what this means, Jesus said, I desire 
compassion and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea chapter six, verse six, which I'll share in a moment. What is Jesus doing in this moment, in this scene? He is expressing something, a verse that we have quoted many times at the bridge. And we gotta quote it again and again and again. I have to quote it, I have to hear it to get it into my thick head, my soul. And it is 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Jesus is saying all your rules, all your traditions, all your regulations, listen, all of those commandments set forth by God himself must be understood in the context of love, in the context of compassion, or the word is chesed, grace. If you understood what this means, I desire grace and not sacrifice. I'm not looking for religious, soulish behavior. I'm looking for the spiritual man, the spiritual woman who is after my heart. The one on whom I pour out compassion. We must understand everything that we study and everything that we do in the context of the love of God. And by the way, that is not the love is love is love lie of today. You've heard that phraseology. Love is love is love. This is a very LGBTQ phraseology. Love is love. No, no, no. God is love. God is love. But our world has made love God. I've said that before. And we see this more radically now than we have ever seen it, people making love into their God. What they call love, and it's not even love. It's not even love, it's carnal lust. God is love, and when we understand the scriptures and, and spirituality and following him in terms of the love of God changes everything. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him abides in love, that is the love that is taught and expressed and realized in God alone, agape, that unconditional love. Now this is the second time in Matthew chapter 12, it's the second time Jesus has quoted Hosea chapter six, verse six to the Pharisees. He quoted it in Matthew 9, 13. He quotes it again here in Matthew 12, verse seven. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Hosea chapter six, verse six. I delight in chesed, that Hebrew word for grace. I delight in grace rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge or wisdom of God more than burnt offerings. So here's the point. The rules are not the point. Grace is the law. It is not, the law is not the point. The law is not the end. Jesus is the end. And grace is the point. Romans chapter 10, verse four, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Christ is the end. The end game of our entire faith walk is Jesus, is the presence of Jesus, the promise that when we are cut up, we will be with him, we will meet him in the air the presence of Jesus. The, the point of the spiritual life now is the presence of God in us and among us. 
Jesus, to whom the law points, to whom the stories point, to whom the word of God points, and he is the greatest proof in all history of the love of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and yet, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And listen again to what Jesus says. Verse six, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Don't miss this. They're in the grain fields on Shabbat. Disciples and Pharisees alike stood in the presence of the bread of the presence, Jesus. The bread of God, which comes down out of heaven, John 6, and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You wanna be a spiritual man, spiritual woman? You're stuck in the soul and you wanna get out? He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The showbread came to the world on full display that we might ultimately be satisfied and sustained. And so the right question in the bread debate back in 1 Samuel 21, the right question is not, should Ahimelech have given or should David have eaten the holy bread? That's not the question. The right question is, how does God respond to the soul-stuck person? David's all in his soul. David shows up. He's telling lies. He's anxious. He's on the run. On the run. What does God do for David in the moment? What does God affirm through Jesus a thousand years later was the right thing? God supplies the bread of the presence. He gives David the bread of the presence. David in his soul. David needs God. It's why he ran to the tabernacle. But he's overthinking this thing. And Jesus said, John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Are you stuck in the soul. Maybe you're stuck in the holy place. You'd love to get more into the presence of God, but there's something in the way. It's not the veil. Jesus took that away. But you're stuck in the holy place. Or maybe you're stuck out in the courtyard of sacrifice. Gotta sacrifice. Gotta keep doing things. Gotta make my life hard because that's, you know, I, I told someone this just last week. Hard doesn't necessarily mean spiritual either. You know, that, that's one of the lies is that, well, I gotta do the hard thing because that's gotta be the godly thing. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Starting this church together with, with the 20 or so people of us that, that, that began was not hard. It was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. It was wonderful, it's easy. Sometimes the very easiest thing is exactly what the Lord has called us to. Maybe you're not even in the courtyard though, trying to offer up sacrifice or, or working in the holy place. Maybe you're somewhere outside and you're trying to figure this out. There is no more veil of separation. 
Jesus tore it down, made the way to the most holy place of the Spirit. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this morning, if you are, and I keep using this phrase, if you are all up in your head, if you are running in fear, if you are rationalizing sin, if you're struggling to figure it all out, in other words, soul stuck, how do I get unstuck? You come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and be satisfied. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Well, how do I come to Jesus? You're here, <laughs> right? You go to where his people are. You talk to him in prayer. You worship him. You open up his word. Well, those things seem like very physical, tangible things. Yeah, and they're things the spiritual man, the spiritual woman does all the time because it brings us into his presence. It reminds us of his presence. So come to Jesus. Jesus.